Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. If you're new with us, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're glad that you've chosen to join us this morning. And when you came in, you may have found a card like this somewhere around where you were seated. And on one side, of that's a place for some information about yourself. Other side, of that's a place for prayer requests. Uh, if you do fill out one of these cards, uh, there is a box at the kiosk in the back of the room. We invite you to drop it there on your way out. We'd love to connect with you, answer any questions you might have, or just pray for you and with you about needs in your life. You can also find that same form on our website. If you scan the QR code on one of the chairbacks in front of you, you can fill out that same information there as well. But we're delighted to have you worship with us today. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 is where we're at this morning. Verses 5 to 11 is our text. I will read it for us as, as you turn there. I invite you to turn there and stay there because we're going to keep going back to it. But Colossians 3, 5 to 11, it's on the screen behind me. If you don't have a copy in front of you, you can follow along there as we read this morning. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes these words, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's word. I can remember whenever my kids were young. A lot of my sermons start that way, don't they? I can remember when my kids were young. Uh, but I remember uh, the, the clothing battles that we would fight sometimes with them. Because as a young child, listen, a young child doesn't know whenever they've got stains all over their clothing. They're not, they don't have enough self-awareness to recognize that. And so they could have jelly stains. They could have pudding stains. They could have mustard stains, ketchup stains, right? All kinds of stains in of various and sundry shapes, forms, and sometimes smells, right, uh, all over their clothing, and they don't recognize it. They're not aware of it. They're oblivious to the fact that there might be holes in their knees of their pants. You remember our son, uh, and, and as many boys are, was hard on the jeans that we bought him growing up, and so it seems like he could wear a pair of jeans for about two months, maybe, and then there were holes all over the knees because he was just always on his knees, sliding around, playing, doing kind of boy things, Okay, so they're oblivious to the holes in their knees. And they don't have any concept of what is appropriate clothing to wear for one occasion may not be the appropriate clothing to wear for another occasion. Okay, so my, anytime we got ready to go to some kind of formal event, if we went to a wedding or we were going to uh, you know, some kind of banquet, we'd have to fight the battle of changing clothes and putting on a pair of jeans as opposed to a pair of shorts, right, to go to a wedding or sports clothes or the clothes they just went to play soccer in, right, that have grass stains all over them, they would go to the wedding in. Right? They don't have any concept of what appropriate attire is for different occasions. And so you would have to constantly tell them to change clothes because it wasn't appropriate for that occasion or because they had stains all over it and they needed to be cleaned. 
See, when kids are young, they don't recognize their clothing is dirty or it's inappropriate for a particular occasion. And the Apostle Paul, throughout the New Testament, uses very similar language to describe the Christian life. It's like changing clothes. It's like putting some clothes off and putting other clothes on. It's putting off vices that once characterized our former way of living before we knew Jesus, and it's putting on virtues that now ought to characterize this new way of life based upon this new identity that we have in Christ. Now, Paul's choice of metaphors here when he talks about putting on and putting off these vices and virtues, they ultimately are rooted in the Jewish teaching where dress ultimately symbolized a, a community's um, relationship and character of their relationship before God. And so taking off vice and putting on true devotion to God is like spiritual clothing for a proper way of life. And so Paul adopts that language and says God's grace has made sin inappropriate clothing for our new life that's the thrust of what this passage says now next week we'll we'll be taking a look at what it is that we ought to put on and Charles will lead us through that as we consider the next passage in Colossians chapter 3 but this week I wonder this morning are there some things that we need to put off some things that we need to put to death both in our individual lives and our personal lives, but also corporately in the life of our congregation and our church? What is it that we would look at and say that's inappropriate for our new identity that we now have in Christ? See, in Colossians 3, 1-4, Paul argued that we have a new identity through our union with Jesus, and we looked at that last week. And we said that we are united to Christ by faith in His death, burial, resurrection, and one day in His return that we will share in His glory. That we've been bound to Him by faith. And we have this new identity. Paul says, this is who you are now. Right, Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is now presently your life, your vitality. Everything that you need is found in Him. That's why we named the series Enough. Because Jesus is sufficient for us. Your identity, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian by faith, is bound together with Jesus. He is your life. And then Paul extends this argument into the later part of the chapter, and listen, into our lives. Into our lives. And he does so by calling us, what I want to say this morning is to do this, to be who we are. That's what Paul does. He calls us to be who we are. And this is the Christian life, church. The Christian life is this ongoing process of becoming in practice who you already are in position. That's the Christian life, right? That you're becoming in practice who you already are in position. Through your union with Jesus, you're already pure, so be pure. Through your union with Jesus, you're already righteous, So live in righteousness. You are already holy, set apart for God through faith in Christ. So be holy in all that you do. You're already forgiven as a child of God, bound together through faith in Jesus. So be free from your past. Right? It's about becoming who you are. That's the Christian life. In Christ, you've been given all of this identity. And so now you're learning to live out of that new identity and be who you are. 
That's why coming out of the first four verses of chapter three, where Paul focuses on our union with Christ, he issues two commands in verses five to 11. Let's take a look at those briefly. The first one in verse five, he commands us to put to death what is earthly in us. What is earthly in us? Now, what is earthly in us relates back to the things on earth in Colossians 3, verse 2, that we looked at last week. And we said last week that what is earthly, those earthly things, are not necessarily the beauty of human relationships and the goodness of God's creation, all that He has made. It's not, necess- it's, it's not those things that we think of when we think of like deriving pleasure from work or from, from uh, possessions or from leisure. That's not what He's talking about. He's talking about a world system, a way of thinking and living that has been co-opted by the powers of evil in order to take those good things that God has made and turn them into ultimate things, turn them into God things, things that we would worship and serve with our lives. And when Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you, he's talking about those ways of thinking and those ways of living that still correspond to that way you were before you met Jesus. He says, put those things to death. There's a remnant of those earthly ways of thinking and living and even loving how we order and prioritize our loves that are still operative in us even after we come to faith in Jesus. And Paul says, before you were nine to faith by Christ, you lived like this. That's what he says. These things you once walked in. He says you were one, at one time full of immorality, impurity, unrestrained passions, evil desire, and greed. You wanted more and more and more and more and more of what the world had to offer. And as a, because, you, because you worshiped what the world worships, you were captive to their idols. And so you craved it. You craved it. You had an appetite for it. But Paul says these practices are no longer fitting for our new identity. And so he says this, essentially he says, put to death, put to death pornography, adultery. Put to death lust and impure thoughts. Put to death over desires for sexual expression and wanting more and more varied types of sexual expression, more frequent sexual expression, more exciting sexual expression with more partners. That's the, that's the covetousness. Wanting more and more and more. Because what Paul's talking about here, if you read the commentators and scholars, they're gonna say each of these terms is referring to a particular vein of sexual impurity or immorality. He says, these things are no longer fitting, so put them to death. Kill them before they kill you. Andrew Murray said this way, he said, I cannot die for sin like Christ, but I can and I must die to sin like Christ. Christ died for me, In that, he stands alone, unique, none other. But Christ died to sin, and in that, I have fellowship with him. And to the degree that I die to sin, I know what it is to live in Christ. And all the fullness of that identity coming out in my life as I put these things to death. Now, Paul doesn't stop with sex. That's typically where we stop, right? If we can just get a handle on our, our, our sexuality, then we must be living out of the fullness of our identity in Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. 
Paul goes on in verse eight to command us to put them all away, and then he defines for us what them is, or them are, I guess would be the more appropriate way of stating it. Right, what them are, that's my Louisiana public education. (laughs) The them we are to put away, Paul says are unchecked emotions of anger and wrath and malice resulting in unbridled speech of slander and obscene talk. See, slander is a form of speech that aims to malign others, to defame others, to insult others, to at times vilify others, to smear their reputation. Slander is born of malice and evil intent toward another person. See, under slander, there is anger and malice and wrath, these unchecked emotions that lead to this unbridled speech. It's Jesus himself who said, the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. And so if we're maligning others, there's something going on in our heart. If we're vilifying others, there's something going on in our heart. An unchecked emotion. That word obscene talk is a form of speech that involves cursing or coarse joking or filthy or vile conversation. Dirty and vulgar themes. This type of speech, listen, when it's directed to others, it's born of anger, wrath, or malice because, listen, you do not curse at someone. I know none of you curse, but you do not curse at someone in the heat of the moment unless there's anger boiling in your heart. You don't speak vilely or vulgarly unless there's some evil intent within your heart. And Paul says that as a part of this new humanity that God is creating in the church, that he's fashioning after his own image, that sins both of sexual immorality and sins of unbridled speech and unchecked emotions, they have no place in that new humanity. If I can reframe it this way, because you are not who you once were, don't live like you once lived. See, that's, The therefore in verse 5. Put to death therefore. What's the therefore therefore? Because of what he said in verses 1 to 4. This is your identity. You're hidden with Christ and God. Therefore, as an inference, then put this to death and put these away. He says, When you work out the logical consequences of this new identity, this is what you get. Putting sin to death. Exchanging the old for the new. Be who you are. That's what Paul says is the essence of the Christian life. Now, if you and I are going to do this, there's a few things this morning I want to share with you that I think are imperative if we're going to learn to be who we are and put these things to death and put those things away. And they come out of this passage. The first one is this. that if you're going to be who you are, you have to know who you are. If you're going to be who you are, you have to know who you are. In verse 10, we're told that the new self is being renewed in knowledge. It's being renewed in knowledge. Now, the word knowledge there literally means to acquire information 
about something with the focus on the process of coming to recognize and realizing something is true. Right? The, the processing of that information that you receive and coming to understand and realize its full implications, the fullness of its reality over the course of time. See, if we're going to be who we are, then we need to know who we are. And that knowledge, it comes more fully, it comes more deeply, it comes more intimately and invasively over the course of time in our lives. Because we all of us have experienced this at some point or another, if you're a Christian. You've experienced these, what I, what I would call coin drop moments. Right? Now, I, I can remember when I was growing up as a kid, Right, the, the vending machines didn't take debit cards or credit cards, right? Some of them didn't even take dollar bills, okay? They just had coin slots on them. So you walk up to the vending machine with your, right, today it takes like, what, $2 worth of quarters to buy a water, okay? But you walk up to the vending machine in those days with like a quarter or 50 cents, and you drop those coins in the slot. And sometimes when you drop those coins in the slot, they get hung up. And so you get frustrated. And as a kid, right, not knowing what was the appropriate thing to do, I would just start trying to shake the machine, right? So I'm shaking the machine, and I'm waiting to hear that coin drop, right? Because sometimes you can shake it enough, and it kind of vibrates the internal mechanisms of that vending machine enough to where that coin would tip over the edge, and you'd hear it fall, boom, and it would drop, right? And then you would put another one in, and you would hear it fall and drop, and then you'd push the button and the soda that you craved, right? came to fruition. You could enjoy it. But you're waiting for that coin to drop. And listen, there are moments like that in our lives where the coin drops. And we don't always anticipate them. We, don't all, we can't always plan for them, but where the coin drops. Sometimes the coin drops whenever you're listening to a song. And you hear lyrics of a song that are communicating the truths of who you are in relation to who God is and who he's made you to be. And all of a sudden, in that moment, the coin drops. And you experience more fully, more deeply, more intimately, more invasively who you are. You come to a greater understanding and knowledge, not only intellectually, but experientially in your life. Sometimes it's through reading scripture. A number of years ago, I was reading through the book of 1 John. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And he says that on the heels of reflecting in 2.29 on the new birth. He says, You've been, we've been born again now. Behold, it's a command that he gives. Right? Look at this intently and see what kind of love the Father has for us. And I thought of moments in my life as I would be walking with my children through the park and holding their hands. And as I walked them through the park holding their hands, I communicated to them all of their lives from the time that they were born that I loved them. And I loved them deeply. They were my children. They were my son or my daughter. But there were times as I held their hand and walked them through the park that you as a parent just get flooded with emotions for this young life that God has entrusted to you. And you pick up that child and you look at it in its eyes, his or her eyes, and you communicate your love and you embrace them and they just light up with this big smile because they're not only 
communicating intellectually, but they're experiencing the embrace of the Father. They're seeing the kind of love the Father has for them. And listen, there, as I read that passage, the coin dropped for me. Not once and for all, because I've had other experiences like that, as the coin drops. And this knowledge of how God sees me as his child, as his son, falls more deeply into my soul, and I have an experience of that. Listen, if you are a Christian, you have those moments. You can't manipulate those moments, right? You can't orchestrate those moments, but they happen where you get a deeper awareness and sense of who you are in Christ, your identity in him, your relationship to the Father through him, and you're flooded with this new reality and realization, being renewed in knowledge. If you're gonna be who you are, you have to know who you are. Listen, one of the things, you can't manipulate the emotional experience of that, but you can put truths of who you are into the machine, right? You can take that money, that quarter, and keep putting it in and putting it in and putting it in, memorizing scripture about who God says you are. Because if you're going to be who you are, you've got to know who you are. These moments may not happen every day, every week, or every month, but from time to time, as you put the quarter in, you'll get a heightened awareness of the Father's love. And it'll, it'll become radioactive for a moment or a season in your life. Second, not only do you have to know who you are, be renewed in knowledge, but you must acknowledge God's role in the process of you becoming who you are. You must acknowledge God's role. In verse 10, we're told that the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Right, so the pattern for this renewal that we're experiencing as we're becoming who we are, the pattern for that, right, in, in, just like in sewing, okay? I don't sew, my mom sewed a lot growing up. She made some of our clothes and our, our, she made dolls that she sold to other families in our, in our community, but she sewed a lot. And one of the things, I, so one of the things I'm familiar with is patterns for sewing. Right? And a pattern is created so that you can reproduce right, the same dress over and over and over again, or the same shorts over and over and over again, or the same blouse over and over and over again. Okay? You can do these things constantly and they look the same. Right, because there's a pattern for it, and the pattern that we're being renewed after is the image of God himself. We're being made, as we're becoming who we are, we're being made to look like him, to think like him, to live with the same values and virtues that indeed the Lord Jesus did, who is the image of the invisible God. That we're being renewed in his image, but he is the one doing the renewing. Because when it says being renewed, that word is a passive verb. It means something's happening to us, but it's not happening by us. That he's doing it. And it means to be restored to a former state, a more preferable state, a state of being like new. Listen, the very first vehicle that my parents helped me purchase was a 1950 Dodge pickup truck. And it was a full frame-up restoration that never made it all the way all right, but I remember tearing that truck down 
into its requisite parts. See, my dad had said, hey, we'll do this together, but my dad's idea of doing this together and my idea of doing that together were two different things. My dad's idea was sipping lemonade and telling me what to do. My idea was that we would be turning some wrenches together, right? But I pulled that, stripped that truck down into its requisite parts, all the way down to the frame, sandblasted the frame, repainted the frame, sent the engine off to have it rebuilt. Uh, All this work that went into it, sanding on the body, putting the body panels back together, right? I made it to the point where I could drive the truck around the yard okay we lived on about an acre of land in south louisiana i could drive the truck around the yard and that was about as far as it got right it sat there for the rest of my teenage years and it was a point of contention between myself and my parents for quite some time as you can imagine right but it was a full frame-up restoration that i left incomplete but i want to tell you something the things that god starts whenever he starts to renew us he finishes he brings them to completion paul says that in philippians chapter one that what god has begun in you he will carry on to completion he's renewing us that's his work he's he's doing it he's making us like new as we become who we are as we grow in knowledge of who we are that He is restoring us. But listen, not only must we acknowledge God's role, but we must also embrace our responsibility in the process. Because we have a very real responsibility to put to death and to put away. Right? So we can't play the game where we say, well, I I don't feel like putting these things to death today. Or I don't feel like putting these things away today. I'll just wait until I feel like putting this to death or until I feel like putting this away, and then I'll do it, right? That's not, we can't play that game because God has a role of restoring us into the image of himself, but we have a responsibility to put away and to put to death so we don't sit idly by waiting for some avalanche of grace to suffocate our flesh wait just waiting still waiting that's not how we engage in this one old 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 (laughs) old and gone pastor many, many years ago, by the name of Henry Scogel, he said it this way, we must not indulge our inclinations as we do little children till they grow weary of the things they are unwilling to let go. We must not continue our sinful practices in hopes that the divine grace will one day overpower our spirits and make us hate them for their own deformity. Like, have you ever been around a little child who has their heart or their mind or their eyes set on a particular toy? <laughs> right? They are fixated. They are, they are locked on, okay? And they do not want to let go. And at times we indulge that as they play with that toy, even if it's time for us to go, okay, bring it with you, okay? Um, you know, bring, bring the toy into the car. We're gonna go on a, on a ride, right? Bring it into the restaurant. Bring it into this person's home, right? We just continue to indulge those inclinations, right? Until they're, all of a sudden, they just put it down. They're not interested anymore, right? Scoville's saying, listen, we don't do that with sin. We don't say, hey, listen, I'm just going to indulge these inclinations until I feel like putting them down. No, we seek to put them to death. We seek to put them to death. How do we put them to death? Listen, I want to say it to you this way. 
I, I, I think the, the older authors, older pastors, older like 16, 17, 1800s, they understood the dynamic of the soul and sin a lot better than we do. So I want to read you a few quotes from them as you think about how it is that we put these things to death. John Owen, in his book on the mortification of sin, said this. He said, to kill a man or any other living thing is to take away the principle of all his strength, vigor, and power so that he cannot act or exert or put forth any proper actings of his own. So if we're going to kill sin, take away its vigor, take away its strength, take away its power so it's not able to act on us, how do we go about doing that? Let me give you three things. First of all, be perceptive when it comes to analyzing sin. You have to be perceptive. You have to perceive its true intent. See, when Paul says, kill sin, put it away from you, you have to perceive its true intent. You have to see it for what it is, right? Instead of sliding food and water under the door to something that's waiting to murder you, right, kill it. Richard Baxter, he said this, he said, spare it not, for it will not spare you. Kill it before it kills you. If the thoughts of death and the grave and rottenness are not pleasant to you, do not let the thoughts of sin be pleasant. Listen to every temptation to sin as you would listen to a temptation to self-murder. And as you would do if the devil brought you a knife and tempted you to cut your throat with it, so do when he offers you the bait of sin. How do you put it to death? Perceive its true intent. Its intention is to destroy you. It's to kill you. Be perceptive. Second of all, be presump- don't be presumptive. See, don't presume you can draw a line and stop at any time. John on the cross said it this way, however small an attachment may be, do not be too confident that you can cut it off at any time. But cut it off at once. For if you do not have the courage to destroy it when it's but beginning, how can you presume upon success when it's taken root and grown? He says, as soon as that seed germinates and there's very tender vegetation growing in the yard, right? You pluck it. You pluck it. Why? Because like crabgrass, Sin will spread, it will send out runners. And who are we to presume that once it's taken root and send out runners in our lives, that we're going to be able to uproot it at that time and be successful? How do you put it to death? How do you kill it? Don't be presumptive. Third, be proactive. Be proactive. Listen, don't fall asleep with the door of your life wide open. And be lulled into a sense of complacency. Thomas Akempis said, we must be especially alert against the beginnings of temptation. For the enemy is more easily conquered if he's refused admittance to the mind and is met beyond the threshold whenever he knocks. See, if, if you crack the door to sin when temptation enters, if you crack the door to sin in your life, it will eventually force its way into your entryway then into your living room, and then your kitchen, 
and then into your closets, into your bathroom, into your bedrooms, into every room of your house. He says, rather than cracking the door and admitting it in, he says, meet it at beyond the threshold and keep it out. So don't yield to that temptation initially. Because once it's in, its aim is to destroy you, to kill you, to murder you. So how do you put those things to death? You gotta be perceptive, you get, don't be presumptive, and you gotta be proactive. Now, this is not the talk to say, hey, just put up all these external barriers in your life, but some of us may need some of those filters established in our lives. We may need to say, hey, I've got to put this software on my phone. We may need to say, I need this software on my computer. We may need to say, I need these, these layers of accountability in my life who are gonna check in on me. Listen, I wanna tell you, the battle, the battle against sin, against sin, it doesn't start out here. It starts in here, in the heart, in the heart. And so we have to embrace our responsibility to fight it, to fight it. And let me tell you how I believe as we close, we ought to fight it and be proactive is that we must learn to fight pleasure with pleasure. And you're like, what do you mean by that? Let me explain it to you this way. There are three ways that you can get rid of weeds in your yard. You can poison them, right, round up. <laughs> so you can poison them, you can pull them, right, and go around trying to find every single little weed and pull it up. Or you can choke them out. You can choke them out. And the way you choke them out is by growing healthy turf grass that's going to not give space for those weed seeds to germinate and pop up. They won't get the sunlight they need. They won't get the water that they need because the turf grass is so healthy that it's choking out those seeds and they're not able to germinate. Now Thomas Chalmers, he was a Scottish pastor in the 1800s. And he said this, he said, no true change ever takes place in our lives apart from a change in our desires. A change in our desires. And so he said, you have to fight one desire with a higher, greater desire. You fight against one pleasure with a greater, deeper, more expansive pleasure. You have to fight one object with a more beautiful object. He said, when I say fight pleasure with pleasure, let me ask you this question, Christian. Is your heart so satisfied with the glory of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ and your identity in him that the seeds of temptation, whenever they fall, they get choked out by the pleasure that you have in God? That's what I mean. Does the truth of the gospel, as you meditate on it and it fertilizes your heart, it fertilizes your soul, does it nourish you to such a degree that you're not looking for nourishment outside of it? You fight pleasure with pleasure. 
by putting before your eyes Jesus Christ and Him crucified and your union with Him by faith and the gift of God's grace and you think on it and you think on it and you think on it and you shake the machine until the coin drops to fight pleasure with pleasure. That's how you put sin to death. It's not just by mustering up enough willpower, but it's by fixing your gaze on the beauty and glory of God. Embrace your responsibility and then entrust that God is going to do His work of restoration as you put things to death in your life and as you put them away. I wonder, church, what there is in our lives that needs to be put to death. And I wonder, church, what there is in our lives that needs to be put away. What clothes are we still wearing that we need to take off because they're just inappropriate for our new identity? They don't fit the situation we're in any longer. this week be active be active in putting it to death and putting it away let's pray together Father your grace astounds us your mercy is a mystery that our, our hearts and our minds could think on for the rest of our lives and never fathom the depths of it. That you would unite us through faith with your Son. That you would give us your Holy Spirit who empowers us to fight sin. to rob sin of its strength, of its vigor, of its power, to kill it and put it to death, and to put away those things that are no longer consistent with who we are. Father, we trust that you will continue to renew us in knowledge after your image. as we embrace our responsibility and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Not presuming, being proactive and being perceptive. Help us to put to death those things that seek to kill us and put away those things that would divide us because here in this new humanity all the divisions outside of these walls no longer hold water for there is no slave or free in your church. There is no barbarian or Scythian. There is no 
Jew or Gentile. But Christ is all and in all. So may our speech reflect that. Without slander, without malicious intent, without obscene talk that comes from anger and malice and wrath. But because we are pure in Christ and righteous in Christ and holy in Christ, may we live as those who are pure and righteous and holy. May we be who we are more today than we were yesterday. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.